as already has been mentioned and you saw on the cover of your uh, program, uh, we are in the series for the summer called Vitals. And as I shared with you last week, we're taking a look at, uh, we're kind of taking four topics and we're doing like a two-week block on those topics, each of those topics. And last week, we began uh, the first topic, which is spiritual formation. We took a look at a, a passage in Galatians chapter 4, and I reminded you as we got into that text that uh, was written by, by Paul to the, to the believers there at the church in Galatia, that up until that point in the letter, Paul had, had been a little bit more on the impersonal side, the confrontational side. He had been, as I said, writing like a, like a scholar or a debater because he was trying to marshal basically every possible argument and illustration to get his message across as they were dealing with uh, something that was corrupting the gospel uh, and their living out and their understanding of it in their particular context. But as, as I said again last week, his approach changed in verse 12 of that chapter 4. And, and it, it wasn't so much him being a debater or a scholar, but basically it, it became much more personal. And, and, and some scholars have suggested that these verses 12 through 20 that we looked at last week are Paul's strongest words of personal affection that he uses in any of his letters. He doesn't so much preach or, or teach, but he pours out his heart. He, says, he said to them at the very beginning of that passage, if you remember, I beg you, I plead with you, I'm asking you. It's the same word that we oftentimes use in the New Testament for pray. So it was, it was a passionate appeal to them as he began to help them to understand what his desire was for them. And as we got toward the end of that passage, we saw that he was, in fact, in agony. And he, was, he said... My children, I am again suffering labor pains. He had, in a sense, given birth to them as he shared the gospel with them and they experienced new birth in Christ. He says, I'm again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. And that word formed is used only here in the entire New Testament. It's the word morpho, which was used originally of artists who shape their uh, raw material into an image. And it's uh, used here to show how it... We, God's desire for us, Paul's desire for those Galatians, and God's desire for us is that Christ would be formed in us. In fact, he even expressed at the end of that section a little bit of frustration when he said, you know what, I don't even know what to do about you guys. He, the, the word is apareo. It means to have no way out, to be at a loss, to, to, to stand in doubt, to be perplexed to be without resources, to not know what to do or even how to decide what to do. That's how he felt about them because, again, his desire was so strong that he wanted Christ to be formed in them. He was begging with them. He was pleading with them. He was, he was urging them and asking them to please allow this process to happen, that Christ would be formed in us. Well, I want to kind of dovetail on from, you know, kind of lead segue right from that particular passage into the passage that's listed in your notes at the top there on the backside from Philippians chapter 3. And uh, this isn't a translation that I've used very often here at Calvary, but some of you may be familiar with, uh, familiar with the Amplified Bible. It's a pretty nice tool. It, it kind of, uh, through the use of grammar and, and uh, sort of a language, it, 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 and, and kind of like expands on the words that are used to give us a little bit of a deeper understanding. So it's, it's almost like a little bit of a, an added scholarly help for us in this, in this particular translation. And there uh, Paul writes... For my determined purpose is that I may 
know him. That I may know him. Remember, what he said for the, for the Galatians is, to the Galatians is he wanted Christ to be formed in them. Now he's saying to a different group of people, it is my determined purpose, is, it, my determined purpose is that I may know him. That I may know him in a, in a way that is, that is beyond oftentimes what we think of knowledge. That I may know him. Look at, look at the parenthetical there. That I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. It's a pretty good, really a pretty good translation in, in trying to help us to understand what exactly Paul is trying to tell those, those Galatian or uh, those, um, I'm sorry, those Philippian Christians there. Because the word is actually the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko means to know uh, by experience, in contrast to an intellectual or intuitive type of knowledge. You see, as with lots of words, there's layered meanings, right? And when we say, when we use the word know, too oftentimes what we refer to when we say we know something is we're talking about the contents of the brain. That's not wrong, it's just not complete. You see, this word is not about knowing something by serious study. It's not about knowing something by comprehension. It's not even about knowing something by intuition. But instead, it's knowing it by experience. Like, for instance, let's think of something. I have not, it's uh, March 1st. I'm headed to Florida for spring break. And I am as pale as can be because I spent all winter here in Michigan and with zero sunlight, right? I go to work and it's dark. I come home and it's dark. We, you know, that's, that's around. Now, by intuition, I can know that if I lay out on the beach with no sunscreen for, eight, for six hours on the beach of Fort Lauderdale or Miami or Daytona or wherever it might be, if I lay out on the beach, by intuition, I could probably say, I bet that there's going to be a problem with my skin if I do that. I might begin to burn. Or I could have someone tell me you know, I could read about the effects of sun on skin that is unprotected. I could learn about that. Or, and some of you have done this, I could experience sunburn. Right? I know, I know, I know, right? I can know by intuition, I can know by intellect, or I can know by experience. And what Paul is saying here is the word that means to know by experience. He's not talking about knowing about Jesus. He's talking about an intimacy with the person of Jesus. Look at that parenthetical again. That I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Perceiving and recognizing and understanding understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. He goes on to say, And that I may in the same way come to know, same word, it's actually only used once, just repeated here for, so in the flow of the sentence, you can understand he's referring to both. So he's talking about knowing his person and also know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers. So I want to know Jesus, him, him personally, not just about him, not just some facts about him, not just I understand the, who the historical person was, but I want to know him in intimacy. I want to experience him in all of his fullness. And I want to also at the same time experience to know the power of his resurrection. 
so that and that I may so share in his suffering as to be continually transformed. That word transformed, it should sound familiar, right? What did he say to the Galatians? I want Christ to be formed morpho in you. I want you to be shaped, right, into becoming like Christ. Now look at what this is. The simorphizo, of course, you can see the root word of morpho in there. Simorphizo means to receive the same form as, to be conformed to. In other words, to become like him. I want to know him. I want to know his power for the purpose of what? Well, remember the verse that we talked about so often in the series where we looked at our vision statement, where we looked at what it meant to be a family on mission? What does Luke 6.40 remind us? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's the same exact thing that Paul is saying when he says to these believers that you would be conformed to Jesus. That is the process of spiritual formation. The process of spiritual formation is that Christ would be formed in us and that we would be conformed to him. And so, Paul's desire, his personal desire, is that he would know Christ, he would know the power of his resurrection, he would even share in those painful sufferings so that what? So that he could become like him, so that he could attain to the same formats, so he could be conformed to. Remember what I said last week when we talked about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is something that happens on both the human and divine level. We are being transformed, but we don't transform ourselves. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what this whole process of Simorphizo is about. I took the time for the last, the entire message last time in the first five or 10 minutes of this message to emphasize what the purpose of spiritual formation is before we get to the practical aspects of spiritual formation. Because as we, over the next uh, few minutes now, are gonna talk about some spiritual practices and rhythms that you can engage in that would help you to become more like Jesus, it's always very important for us to remember. Some of you grew up in households, unfortunately, that were all about obligation, duty, and shame. It's not an easy type of house to grow up in. Some of you grew up in churches where it was about obligation, duty, shame, and bondage. It was about, it was about almost like beating you up with the person of God and the word of God, rather than helping you to understand God's desire for you to know him and become like him. You see, when we begin talking about these spiritual practices and rhythms here in just a minute or two, I don't want you to see it as obligation because obligation will lead to bondage. I want you instead to see it as an invitation, an invitation for your life that will lead to freedom. This invitation that God gives us through these spiritual practices and rhythms allows us and puts us in a place where we, when experiencing these practices, experiencing these rhythms, participating in these spiritual disciplines, they become a means of receiving his grace. Remember what I said last week, Richard Foster says in his classic book, A Celebration of Discipline, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us transform us, become like Jesus, transform us, that we would be conformed to the same image, right? Same formats. That's what his desire is for us. 
What does Foster say again? The spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practice, uh, place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done by God. So the purpose of all of this, the overarching purpose of formation, of spiritual formation, is becoming like Jesus. The overall process is God partnering with, with, with us. And as we yield, as we place ourselves in these, in these practices and rhythms, God does something with our lives. So uh, this is not about me beating you up, making you feel guilty, uh, help laying on top of you some sort of unreasonable burden as we talk about some practices and rhythms that the scripture suggests that we should participate in. It's not about adding some sort of, sh- uh, of guilt to your life. It's an invitation from God to say, could possibly one or two or three or a few of these things help you to become like Jesus? To be conformed to his image. Before we get to those practices and rhythms, those practical aspects, let me just pause for just a second and pray before I go any further. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher today. And we ask God that as we look at some of these disciplines, these healthy habits, these spiritual practices, these rhythms of our lives, that you would, again, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher. And that we would see you inviting us into a life that is beyond something that we really are able, even, even capable of imagining. That we literally could, could know you. Know you intimately know your power, and that you would begin to change us. Thank you, God, for the invitation. Watch over my words carefully so that it would be your words that are spoken, not what's in my heart or mind. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to jot these down. As we move throughout these, I'm going to move through them rather quickly. Um, I do want to commend to you that resource that I have mentioned a couple of times already the last couple of weeks, a classic book. It's an older book written in the 70s, Celebration of Dis- Discipline by, by Richard Foster. It is still in print. You, you still can get it. And uh, it would be a wonderful re- resource for you to use to deepen uh, your engagement of these spiritual disciplines and practices. The first one that I'd like to talk about as we look at these practices and rhythms is the discipline of study. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. It's been suggested that study is the primary vehicle for us to dwell on or think on those things. Study is a specific kind of experience in which, through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. I would suggest to you that we are called to be people who are studious people, who don't, life doesn't just like pass us by without, uh, without us taking note of what's going on in it. There are many things for us to study. Of course, we're called to study the Bible. Scripture calls us to study it. 
And we're called, of course, if it is the revelation of God to his, to his people, of course, that's one of the things that we should be studying. There are other books that are helpful for us to study. There are ideas for us to contemplate and study. There are things, there are events, there are actions. There is also something known as the study of people, the study of relationships. Living again our lives with a particular mental orientation. Remember what it, what, how study was defined. A specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, I'm not letting the, the, the conversation go by at work without me giving some mental energy to it to understand, well, where did that comment come from in that conference room from that person? Is that from a place of pain? Was that from a place of fear? What's going on there with them? Maybe I should have a, com- a deeper conversation with them about that. It's allowing, it's allowing those events that happen in our life, whether it's current events, uh, something that we're not necessarily connected to personally, or those personal relationships we have. It's ha- living our lives with a studious, under, uh, a studious approach so that it doesn't just, we don't just let things pass by and then forget about them. Some have suggested there's kind of four steps to the idea of study. Repetition, concentration, comprehension, and reflection. That last one of reflection is when we try to understand the significance of what, is, of what we're studying, whether it is a particular Bible passage, whether it's an individual with whom we have a relationship, whether it's some sort of political debate that's going on, or whether it's some type of current event that just occurred. That understanding the significance of that is almost like, what is God's perspective on it? Study is one of those classic spiritual disciplines. Again, I'm going to just give you a snippet of each. Hopefully it's intriguing enough for you to take some of those next steps on your own. The second practice is something known as meditation. Meditation. In, in the Psalms, uh, there's, there's full of references to meditation. And in, as you can see, I have one of those Psalms listed there on the screen, Psalm 63, 6. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. There are two different Hebrew words uh, for the idea or concept of meditation that fill scripture. About 58 times those two words are used. And uh, it basically refers to the following things. Listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing his deeds, ruminating on his law, and more. That's the idea of those two words of, of, of meditation. And interestingly enough, repentance and obedience always seem to be very closely connected to the idea of meditating on his works, on his words, on his person, on his mighty acts. A scriptural understanding of meditation seems to lead one into this place of repentance and meditation. In Psalm 1-2, it says, But they delight in the law of the Lord, and meditating on it day and night. Again, meditation is that, is that place in which we are allowing our, our, ourselves, our brains, our, our entire beings to focus on some particular aspect of God, on some particular aspect of his word, on some particular a- a- attribute of his, on something that's happening, happening in society. Whereas study is, and this is maybe the way that you understand both of these things, whereas study is more analytical, exegetical, Meditation is more devotional, is more intimate. So those two things go hand in hand. Study and meditation go hand in hand for us to be able to understand that. So 
there are certain types of meditation. Of course, we're called to meditate on Scripture. We're called to meditate on, on, the, on the works of God. In fact, sometimes one of the most powerful things that we can do is we can place ourselves in a situation where obser- we're observing something that's in, in, uh, incredibly beautiful in God's creation and we're meditating. We're not worshiping the creation, but we're meditating on the fact that God had brought all this together with his very word, with his creative act. So we meditate on scripture. We meditate on creation. We can even meditate again on some of those current issues where we're, again, allowing ourselves to more deeply understand what is going on so that we can have a better response to them rather than being uninformed or oblivious to what might be happening. Study, meditation, a third, uh, pr- uh, a third spiritual habit or discipline for us to consider, of course, is prayer. I may not need to spend a lot of time here in prayer, but I do want to say just a couple of things before we move on. Uh, A quote from Foster first is this, prayer catapults us onto the frontier of the spiritual life. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. May may I just say one thing about prayer as it relates to spiritual spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. I think we need to be careful that prayer doesn't simply become a list of everything that we want. It's not wrong to pray for the physical needs of ourselves or friends economic needs, other things like that. Well, one of the things I would suggest to you as you consider how prayer can form you into the image of Jesus is seeing prayer as a place where you are listening even more than you are speaking. A posture of prayer where you are listening, where you're where you're, where you're putting yourself in a place where, again, coupled with meditating on the word of God and his incredible creation, studying that word and, and understanding it and comprehending it and seeing it in its context, putting all those three things together, study and meditation and prayer, becomes something that becomes very, very formational. So just suggesting that you would see prayer as something more than simply asking, but also that it's a, this place that uh, Foster refers to as perpetual communion with the Father. Coupled oftentimes with prayer in Scripture is the spiritual discipline of fasting. We know that Jesus fasted. I have one passage listed here from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. Fasting at its core is simply this. It's abstaining from food or something else for spiritual purposes. Now, there's lots of, there are resources on, on fasting. Again, Foster does a great job of giving you some practical handles on, on how to prepare for a fast and what a fast is about and why fasting is important. I would, of course, suggest that for there, there might be those of you who, because of medical, physical limitations, uh, you can't fast. You might be an exp- uh, a woman who is expecting a child and you can't fast. You might be a nursing mother and you can't fast. You might have some other sort of physical or medical things that prevent you from fasting. So there might be other things that we can abstain from. Some people abstain from technology. Some people abstain, abstain from TV. Some people abstain from a particular, uh, not all food, but a particular type of food or a particular type of drink. So the, the purpose of, of, of fasting, though, is not simply the, the, the abstinence, but it's putting, in the, putting us in, the, in that place for, uh, that we can be more hyper-focused and sensitive to, our spiritual, to the spiritual realm. Foster says this, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. 
it isn't a command from Scripture necessarily. I don't think we have a command from Scripture where it says, thou shalt fast. I understand that. But I think that we could at least say that though it wasn't a command, it seems that Jesus proceeded on the principle that the child of the kingdom of God would fast when he says in Matthew 6, 16 to his followers, when you fast. So there seems to be an assumption there that fasting was a part of the life of the child of God. And again, it's not about you feeling like this is a requirement or a command or an obligation or a duty. It's an invitation. It's an invitation perhaps for you to set something aside for spiritual purposes and maybe find out how much that something actually has control on your life and give you a new context of what you might, how you might want to handle it in the future. So fasting is another one of those spiritual rhythms. So far we've talked about prayer, talked about study, meditation, fasting. I'm going to move into some others now real quickly. Fifth, solitude. Solitude is uh, oftentimes accompanied by silence. Uh, again, we see this practiced in the life of Jesus in Mark 1.35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. That word deserted is eremos in the Greek. It means solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited. <laughs> it's interesting. There has been written, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, it's been written probably especially in the last five to ten years, about the epidemic of loneliness that exists in our society. Foster says in, in, this, in, in this book that it, he says it's interesting to note that when we talk about experiencing solitude, it seems like something that where somebody would say, wait, I, I don't want to experience solitude. I'm already lonely. <laughs> but see, solitude and loneliness are not the same thing. Jesus calls us from loneliness into solitude. Loneliness is about inner emptiness. When we experience solitude, we begin to experience inner fulfillment. It puts us in a different place. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, it's very interesting. He had two two chapters back to back. The two chapters back to back that Bonhoeffer wrote in Life Together are the day to gather together and the next, the, 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 uh, the next uh, chapter was the day to be alone. And in, in, his, in that book, uh, Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, beware of the person who is unable to experience solitude because of what they will do to community. And beware of the person who is not in community as they won't be able to experience solitude in the right way. Experiencing solitude and community are two sides of a, of, of a coin that help us to be formed in Christ Jesus. And I would just, I would just remind you that in Luke 5, 16, it, the Bible says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Again, that same word, solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited. Where is your place? To where do you withdraw? Is there a, is there a time in your life where you set aside the phone, where you get away from everyone else, where you perhaps get to a particular location or at a particular time, and you just allow yourself to be quiet, alone and quiet with the one who, remember, you want to get to know intimately. You're trying to remove all those other things so that you can know him experientially, 
intimately. Solitude and silence, again, another key spiritual practice and habit for us to grow in our walk with Jesus. Simplicity. Simplicity is an inward reality, but of course it leads to an outward lifestyle. Duplicity is something that brings bondage. It brings anxiety. It brings fear. Simplicity is freedom, and it brings joy and balance. Foster says again in celebration of discipline, the central point for the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the, righteous, and the righteousness of his kingdom first, and then everything necessary will come in its proper order. Simplicity is really about having a singular divine center and core. Nothing else can replace that. And so because if you live the life of simplicity, will will a life of simplicity, will there be practical things that come from that? Yes. For instance, he mentions things like, in in suggestions in his book, Foster mentions things about like giving things away, uh, about Buying things only because they're useful, not necessarily because you want them. He, he says to beware of addictions. He says beware of purchases or of ways in which you engage in things that actually oppress other people. So will simplicity have an outward flow? Yes, but it, the, the, you can't participate in the outward flow, flow properly unless the inner being is being transformed. So that's why simplicity is an inward reality that then has an outward outcome. The central point is for us to understand that I have one singular focus of my life. I have a simple singular focus of my life, and it is Jesus and his righteousness and his kingdom. It's been said that of all the disciplines, of all those spiritual habits, simplicity is the most visible and therefore the most open to corruption. So again, we go back to what, what the purpose of it is, is about helping us to, stay our, to maintain our focus on the person of Jesus. That's what a life of simplicity looks like. Two more. Last, next to last one is submission. It's been suggested that Jesus, as part of his agenda, was offering to us the understanding of a revolutionary and a voluntary subordination to others. If there's, one, if there's one thing that becomes the perfect symbol of submission, it's the cross. A revolutionary and voluntary subordination of my will to someone else's. That's what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane right? The Garden of Gethsemane was about Jesus submitting to the will of his Father, about Jesus experiencing this. And so it's been suggested that then we as, as the followers of Jesus are called again likewise because we want to become like him to this revolutionary and voluntary submission. Who do we submit to? Let me suggest to you that there's about six or seven things that we need to consider as we consider the, the act of submission. First and foremost, of course, we submit to God. We submit to scripture. We submit to our families. We submit to our neighbors the people with whom we have contact on a regular basis. We see ourselves as subordinate to them. We see our needs as less important than their needs. We consider what would be best for them more than what we consider what would be best for us. We submit to the body of Christ, that is, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We submit to the broken and the despised. We submit to them, and rather than standing in judgment over them, rather than seeing ourselves as some sort of uh, people who can come and fix them, we submit to them, we subordinate to them so that we might serve them. 
And ultimately, we submit to the world and we say, how as a member of the global community, am I a person who is trying to do things that, is, that are beneficial for the entirety of the human race rather than just for me? The revolutionary and voluntary submission that Jesus engaged in was one that allowed us to have eternal life. And when we're called to, again, be like our teacher, when we're fully trained, when we know him well, when we're called to be like our teacher, I would suggest that we also participate in this revolutionary and voluntary subordination known as submission. The last one for today there's a lot here. And by, in one sense, sometimes you say, man, eight things. I'm not, please again, don't hear this as something where you're like, you got to get started on every one of these things today. But maybe by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's taking one or two of these things and saying, hey, Mike, hey, Sally, hey, Tom. I want to invite you into this. I invite you into this place of meditation. I want to invite you into this practice of prayer. I want to invite you into this rhythm of simplicity. The last one before we wrap up is service. If the cross is a symbol of submission, then I think you guys would know what the symbol of, of service is. The towel is the symbol of, of service. Because before he embraced the cross, Jesus took some water, took a towel, washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, what did he say? I've given you an example that you should go and do as I have done. Serving not myself, not having my agenda or my will or my desires first and foremost in my mind, but again, looking to others how I might serve them. This quick little survey of six or eight of these spiritual practices or habits, again, in no way is an exhaustive look at everything that could possibly be of benefit to you in spiritual formation. But I hope and I pray that perhaps God would use it to intrigue you with an invitation from him to know him, to be conformed to his image, that Christ would be formed in you so that we could become more like him. As I oftentimes say, if there's ways in which we could help you with next steps, if there's discussions, whether face-to-face -face or via some other way, that we can help you grow in any of this manner, we certainly want to invite you to reach out to us so that we can come alongside you because, again, we want to be all about helping people follow Jesus together. This morning, as we think about that last act of Jesus, before he faced the cross, we're actually going to participate in communion today. And uh, if you are one of the servers that are going to be uh, serving us with communion, if you guys could go ahead and head to the back and prepare to, to get those trays ready. Reminder to all of us as they're making their way back there, that if you, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've received by faith a new life in his blood, then uh, you're certainly invited to participate in communion. You don't have to be a member of Calvary or a member of, of any particular local church. So we practice open communion. The plates are going to pass in front of you, 
And so you can take out a cup of juice and you take out a piece of bread and then hold on to that. After we've all been served, I'll come back up and we'll eat, we'll drink together. Let me pray and then uh, the servers will uh, start the plates down the aisle. Thank you, Lord, for um, the invitation to relationship that comes from you as our loving Heavenly Father. We thank you for the gift of these practices. And we pray, God, that as we think about your call on our life to be conformed into the image of your Son, we just pray that there might be a little bit of an in, uh, a little bit of an interest, a little bit of an intrigue, a little bit of a desire to engage in two or three of these practices that might facilitate us to be conformed into the image of your Son. We thank you, God, that you invite us into this life of freedom and love and power and, yes, suffering. Help us to know you, God. And even today, as we hold that cup of juice and that piece of bread, may we be reminded of the extent to which you went that we might know you. In the incarnation, we see Jesus as the full representation of the Father. And in his death, an act of perfect and voluntary and revolutionary submission, we have life. Remind us of that as we hold those in our hands today. Amen.